live in the magic mirror come from the farther space. Through wind and darkness I summon thee. Let me see thy face. What wouldst thou know, my queen? Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? Famed is thy beauty, majesty. But hold, a lovely maid I see. Rags cannot hide her gentle grace. Alas, she is more fair than thee. Alas for her. Reveal her name. Lips red as the rose, hair black as ebony. Skin white as snow. Snow white. secret you're standing by a wishing well i know uh this is the movie that started it all off this is the very first disney movie of all time uh 1938 can you believe that 1938 is when this premiered and it's uh, snow white she's the original princess and not only is she the original princess she is part she's part of what they call the dream team of princesses ed can you bring up that picture there they are right there. They're the, the girls that you wanted to hang out with, but you couldn't. Uh, this, uh, they, they don't hang out with Pocahontas and Mulan and Tiana. Those girls sit on the other side of the quad. But these are the dream team here. And, um, you know, even the Aladdin girl. She's like, you know. But anyway, uh, these are like the popular girls, right? And, and Snow White, I mean, she is by far the most popular. And she is the most iconic princess of them all because she's the first but not only is she you know up there with the popular girls she deserves to be up there with the popular girls because she's got everybody beat uh snow white uh was until just recently was the top grossing animated film of all time uh to to adjust for infl inflation uh, if, it, if we would have shown Snow White to our culture or, you know, if it, if it was different, you know, for inflation and population, Snow White would have brought in $950 million in the box office alone. Uh, just recently, Frozen beat that by a billion worldwide. I know, crazy, isn't it? Uh, so she, she, she's the number one box office hit of all, well, except for Frozen, uh, for, for animated films. Uh, in addition to that, this film got an Academy, Academy Award and the 11th Academy Awards for Best Musical. It is also on the National Film Registry and it's ranked 34 out of the top 100 films of all time. And it is the only animated film in the top 100. All of the other ones, are, they're like Citizen Kane and all those important movies. But it is number 34. Um, and it is also, it is, it is the top 10 grossing animated uh, uh, movies of all time. And so it's a, it's a big deal. So Snow White has got some major bragging rights. And again, it is, it is the movie that started it all off. And it, it, it sets the very foundation of, of Walt's, for lack of better words, Walt's theology. Or Walt's, uh, his, his, he's building something, he's building a culture, and he's building values. And Snow White, it, it, it is, it's, it, it's the very beginnings of it. And we begin to see 
Disney's values come out in this movie. And so we're going to take a look at it. Now, this movie, Snow White, uh, it, it ba there's three things that I want to take a look at, three major themes. Of course, it's going to deal with the you know, good versus evil. That's always a major element. And then every Disney, every classic Disney movie has a supernatural element. We'll take a look at that. Uh, and there's a moral lesson, so we'll take a look at those. But also the other major themes that I want to look at, the biblical themes, is sin, what sin does to good people, and salvation. So those are the three, three biblical things that we're going to take a look at. So the first part of the movie, uh, sin, is, sin is manifested in the very person of the evil stepmother, right? She is, she is evil. She's the first, like, bad lady, right? And, and she's gorgeous. She's beautiful. And so what sin is, is do you see in this lady, in this queen? Well, first of all, she's known, and then from the very, the, the, the title page is, you know, the, the book was turning. Uh, she was the vain queen, right? So she's consumed about her own vanity. She's consumed about how well she looks. How is she presented to others? So that's the, that is, it's actually not the source of her sin, but that is one of the telltale things. The other problem that she has, and you saw this in, in the clip, she's wrathful, right? So she, she, she explodes with anger because she has, not only does she have vanity, which is, which is a, a problem, but she also has wrath, and it is stems from envy or jealousy. So she's envious. And I don't know if you're picking up on this, but these are all, these are all part of the seven deadly sins. So she is incorporating all, uh, not all of them, but getting there, all of the seven deadly sins. She doesn't have, you know, gluttony and... But she, she does have murder. I mean, it's, it's getting in there. So um, she, is, uh, she is manifesting something that the wrath, the envy, the um, jealousy, that all stems from one very specific sin, and that is pride. So pride is what fuels her vanity. Pride is what fuels her envy, and pride is what fuels her wrath. And we know that we know that the number one sin that afflicts humankind is the sin of pride. It goes all the way back to the garden. And when the when the when the medieval scholars were working on the concept of the seven deadly sins, like if you look up seven deadly sins in the back of your Bible, you're not going to find it because the seven deadly sins was a theological thing that they developed later, but it all pulls out from specific parts of the Bible. I'll read one section for you guys so you get an idea. Uh, this is Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. I'll, tell you, I'll read it off the screen because I think my version is a little bit different. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sensual immorality, impurity, uh, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. We definitely saw that. Hatred, we saw that. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, we saw those. Selfish ambition, we saw that. Dissensions and, frac and factions. And envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these are all sins of the flesh. Did you notice that there was one that wasn't mentioned? The one that was not mentioned was pride. Because uh, Paul addresses the issue of pride before he goes over these sins of the flesh. And pride... Okay, if you know the seven deadly sins, they have a counterpart, or they have their opposite. And the opposite are the virtues. You want to go over those real quick? I'll tell you what the virtues are. Okay, so, um, so the vice of sin, or the seven deadly sins, it's lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. So the opposite of lust is chastity, right? So that's the virtue. The opposite of gluttony is temperance. Trying to keep yourself controlled. Stay away from the fries. Um, the opposite of greed is charity. How do you know if you're a greedy person? I don't know. Do you, are, you, are you charitable? That's the opposite. The opposite of sloth is obviously diligence. Uh, the opposite of wrath. What do you think the opposite of wrath would be? It's patience. Patience. The opposite of envy. You want to take a stab at this one? What's the opposite of envy? 
you've got jealousy, you've got envy in your eye, what's the opposite of that? The virtue. Kindness. Kindness, expressing kindness to other people. And then the one, the, the vice, the sin that everything stems from is pride. And what do you think the opposite of pride might be? It's humility. So the opposite of pride is humility. And when, before Paul rattles off the, the, the sins of the flesh, he goes into depth on teaching people, on teaching the Galatians how to live a humble life how to serve one another, how to express kindness to another. But he said the key word here is humility. He, he lays it all out. Look, see, you have to be able to take on this air of humility. And if you don't, pride sneaks in. Actually, pride is the sneakiest sin out of them all because we don't see it coming. Uh, it is, it's easy to develop the sin of pride because, well, you know what? We work hard. We want the best for our lives. We want the best for our families. And, and we take pride in what we do. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, you two wrote a song, Pride in the Name of Love, right, about Martin Luther King. That's a great song. That's a good pride, right? That's, that's you know, like I, I'm going to take pride and I'm going to have a sense of self-worth. Okay, there's, that's, that's the key right there. The self-worth area is, is what we need to focus on. We have to quit beating ourselves up. And, and tearing ourselves down and saying, oh, Josh, and you're, just, you're, you're an idiot. You just you forget stuff. And you have to quit doing those types of things and begin to say, I am a child of the living God. This is my new identity. And so, um, but if we take that to extreme or if we, if we let that, the enemy of God is brilliant at, uh, at, at morphing and perverting our good intentions. So he could take that good thing, that, 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 that self-esteem that you have, and he can, he can warp it into the sin of pride. I'll give, you, I'll give you a really good practical illustration. And this is probably some, this is something that, that's come up recently in my own personal life. And I don't have the sin of pride, but I'm noticing perception, because perception is important. When you present yourself to the public, when you present yourself to your family or your coworkers, perception is everything. And even if your intentions aren't bad, what comes out of your mouth, how you carry yourself, how you act is extremely important. So a few, um, see, I, I have been the lead pastor, senior pastor, uh, since March. And I love Granite Creek. I love you guys. I mean, and, and, and I take pride in my church. And I always refer, I have, I have ownership of my church. I, I work in the church, obviously. Um, if I was not on staff, I would come to this church. I'd be a part of this church. And so I refer to it as, as my church. You know, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go to my church. Or my church is, has this program or has this thing that's going on. So a few months back, I was at a pastor's conference uh, it's a, a very small pastors get together type of a thing. It wasn't a conference. It was a, a group of local pastors that get together and they pray for each other and they talk about the needs of their church and they bring those issues up to the front. And so I said, you know, I'm really struggling right now with the idea of preaching the gospel according to Disney. And I don't know if it's a good idea for my church. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being completely sarcastic here. I didn't bring up Disney, but... Um, anyway, but I, 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 there was something that we were talking about, and I used the word my church. And one of the pastors says, you know, Josh, it's not your church. It's the Lord's church, right? Truth to that, okay? You know, it's like, oh, man, really? So now that I'm the lead guy, I can't say it's my church anymore. <laughs> so I have to say, I continually say it's God's church, okay? And I get that. So I have to be sensitive to my language now, right? And, and you guys do too. Um, so, of course, we want you always to say that this is your church. There's even a bubble on your tear-off that says, my church. But, uh, so, okay, I, so he perceived that there might have been a, a tinge of spiritual pride, right? You see that? You see that? Because I refer to it as my church. This is, I'm, I'm possessing Granite Creek Community Church. That's how he saw it. And uh, it's like, okay, and uh, so I have to, I have to 
you know, engage myself. Now, if I ever decided, okay, church, we're going to change the name of Granite Creek Community Church to the full gospel of Joshua Kapczynski and make your checks out payable to Joshua Kapczynski Ministries, uh, you guys would have, you'd have some problems with it, right? Because what I would be doing is I would be usurping the authority that God has placed here, and I'd be putting myself above Jesus. You guys see where I'm going with this? And you guys would all have issues with that. I hope so, right? All right. So it's not my church. It's God's church. Now I'm going to push on you. I'm going to push on you really, really hard right now because you guys all understand that idea, right? You all understand that concept. Likewise, like I work hard in this church. We put in, our, our pastoral staff puts in a lot of hours. We have deep ownership of what goes on here. So it's, it, you could easily fall into that, that, that sin of, of, of ownership and of pride, like this is mine and, you know, whatever. Likewise, if you own a business, you could easily fall into this sin of pride. You could say, well, my business is going to do it this way, and this is my thing. This is my kingdom. This, I, I, it is my blood, sweat, and tears that went in, and money that went into this. I took all the risk. It's mine. Mine, 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 mine. This is my education. I, I poured hours and hours into my education. And this is mine, 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 mine. And I'm going to be the intellectual superstar. I am, I am awesome. Everything is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my family. Okay, do you, you see where I'm going? This is my family. And it is, it's my own little personal collection of people. And they're mine. And I'm going to dictate what everybody does in my family. My kids are going to do a certain thing. They're going to act a certain way. They're going to go to certain colleges. They are under my control. Remember last week when I talked about Peter Pan and James Barry? And James Barry had this emotional connection to the kids that he adopted. He, he wanted, he, he just loved them to death. He identified with childhood, adolescence. He was crazy about it, yet he, he perverted it. And he would not allow his kids to grow up. And the main complaint against James Barry, the, the author of Peter Pan, was uh, from his own children, is that he wanted to control them and possess them. And he didn't want his kids to grow up. And as a result, his kids hated his stinking guts, and one of his kids committed suicide. Isn't that tragic? So whenever we begin to say, this is mine, this is difficult for parents because I'm a parent. I, that, she's mine, right? The Lord will say, no, not, not really. She, she actually belongs to me, Josh. She's not yours. I'm letting you parent her. I'm letting you rear her in the ways of the Lord. It is your responsibility to be a good steward of what I've given you, and she is yours, and and, and you need to be a good steward and raise her well. This is not your business, Josh. This is my business, and I'm letting you run it. This is not your career. This is, I have put you in this place. You may think that your education and your hard work and all these things have got you to where you're at, but they haven't. I have placed you here. I have a plan, I have a purpose for your life, and, and I want you to fall in line with my designs for you. It's very difficult for us to do. It goes against our human nature. It is the number one original sin. The number one original sin actually came from Satan himself, and what was, what was it? He's like, I want to put my, I, I like what God is getting. God's getting all this attention. I've actually had this attention flow through me. That was the job of Lucifer, the, the devil himself, before he fell, is that he channeled all of creation's praises through his being and amplified it to God. That was his, that was his job. So he got, he got a taste of glory, and it made him jealous and it was the pride of Lucifer that drove him to rebel against God. And that is the same sin that we have. Our sin, the, the, the core of all of our sins, everything that you could do, whether you, you 
you blow it morally or whether you, you drank too much or whether you're, you're, you're got looking at stuff that you shouldn't be looking at, it all stems from pride. It all stems from that area in your life that says, I want to be God of my own life. I want control. I want to sit on the throne. Vanity comes from that. Now, I want to make a point on vanity. It is okay to look nice when you come to church. It is okay to dress up for events, to put on makeup, to buff your shoes. Uh, that is not, that is self-esteem. That is not spiritual pride. So if you guys all come to church next week looking like slobs, I think you missed the point. Um, now, where the enemy of God can warp self-esteem into the sin of pride is when you start putting needles in your lips to blow your lips up to be like, you know, uh, you know, like, like footballs. Like God doesn't want you to have footballs for lips. He just wants you to look like, he wants you to be yourself. But our culture is obsessed with vanity. And, and so we're doing, you know, we're, we're putting Botoxes in places that doesn't belong and we're adding things that, blowing things up here and there. It just, it, it's just not what God intended. And that is, this, that is, this, that is this, the sin of, of, of vanity, which stems from pride. And it is, it's either like, oh, I want everybody to look at me because I'm, I'm, I'm awesome, everything is awesome. Or it, is, it's a, it stems from an insecurity. I want everybody to like me. I want to, you know, it, that, again, that all goes back to pride. And every, all of these things, they manifest in the very character of the evil stepmother. That she is, she is sin. And then her jealousy, her rage, her wrath, her envy, her pride, it, it manifests in, in murder itself. So you see her acted out. And of course, she taps into witchcraft. Uh, the spiritual force in this movie is witchcraft. It is the evil itself is seen in that scary, ominous, uh, greenly lit mirror. So the supernatural element in this movie, and actually in this movie only, is evil. In all, some, most of the other Disney movies, the spiritual force, there's a good spiritual force, and then there's an evil spiritual force, right? Well, in this one, the, the supernatural force is evil only. There is no... It's debatable, but there is no, there's no pixie dust in Snow White. Did you notice that? There is no little fairies doing little spells and, and turning, you know, rats into coachmen and, and pumpkins into carriages. There's none of that. Uh, it, the, the, the breakthrough, the miracle happens on a very natural level, and so we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, so... Next major point. So we talked about sin. We talked about the manifestation of sin, how it all kind of ties to the vices and the virtues. And now I want to talk about uh, the issue of what sin does to a perfect community. What sin can do um, in an individual's life and in a community's life. Uh, basically, the whole idea of bad things happening to good people when sin is introduced. Ed, if we can show the next clip, that would be great.
I'm awfully sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you. But you don't know what I've been through. And all because of the fuss I made. What do you do when things go wrong? So what is going on? I forgot to, to tell you the, the heads up. But for the Snow White realizes that there's sin. Her, her own mother-in-law just put a hit on her. And so she just realizes for the first time that she's in danger and she's going to die. And that, that sin has its consequences. And sin is out to kill her. And so she flees. Uh, the huntsman, he can't, he can't go through with the murder. Sets her free. Gives her a huge reality check. And she runs into the wild. She, wa- she runs into the wilderness. And the fear that was in her heart has amplified everything that's in the woods. And all of these scary things that happened to her, you know, the, the, the trees with all their branches that are grabbing her, her dress and the, the big spooky eyes and the crocodile logs and all of these things, they're all figments of her imagination that has been fueled by her own fear. They're actually not out to get her at all. But again, this is her own imagination that is, that is, that is fear-fueled. And Mako hates this, this part of the movie. She doesn't even like uh, uh, Snow White because Snow White is so passive. She's, she's so demure and unempowered, right? I mean, and then she's just... Fault. She says she cries in, 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 the, in the woods, and she can't do anything to help herself. But I need to, need to highlight something that some very important truth that Snow White utters. She said, and it got choppy. I'm sorry about the, the video, but what she says is she says, says my fear has, has led me to this, this awful mess that I'm in. So she realizes what she has done, and um, she's realizing that what she is perceiving is not reality, right? What is reality? It's not all, the, the, the woods are not out to kill her. The little woodland creatures want to be her friend. And she says, hmm, what do you do when you have gone through something very difficult? She asks a very important question. Now, yesterday was not a very good day for me. I had a lot of crazy things going on. Uh, my schedule got out of whack. Uh, the the power in the in the building went out. So it's a miracle that you guys have lights today. Uh, <laughs> so I spent most of the day trying to turn the power on. Uh, there was a lot of little things that just you know the, the copy machine didn't didn't work. So I wasn't able to print my notes off until this morning. A lot of craziness is just going on. And so it's like oh gosh I gotta get I gotta get this stress off me. So. And I gotta get my head around my message, and I gotta get in the game here. And so I'm gonna go to the, I'm gonna go to the gym. I'm gonna work out. I'm gonna burn some of the stress off. And so uh, I got a great workout, all pumped up, all energized, right? And I shower and I'm getting dressed, get my shirt on, get my socks on. It's like I forgot my pants. <laughs> I got I got service in 20 minutes, and I have forgotten my pants. And I got, I got Disney on the brain. God has a really funny sense of humor. It's really ironic. Because my whole week I'm singing Disney songs. I got Disney characters and my voices in my head. It's driving me nuts. And, and, and as I realized the horror of not having pants, <laughs> this voice comes into my head. Oh, you silly little boy. Did, did you forget your pants again? You don't have to lose your temper. It's not worth it. Just, just smile and sing a song and everything's going to be okay. 
You know, losing it doesn't get us anywhere, right? When, when life goes crazy, losing your temper is not going to solve the problem. When, when difficulties come into our lives, worrying about it is not going to solve the problem. It only makes things worse. It only makes, you know, the, the problems amplified and turn into monsters and have big tentacles and, and big giant teeth. This is uh, the, the, that, that point right there that where, where, where she says, what do you do when, when you're in hard times? And, and the little birds and the little squirrels and bunnies say, well, we, we sing a song. She says, I get it. You, you, you smile and you sing a song and all of your worries will fade away. That is, that's the Disney credo right there. That every classic Disney movie, you know, at least while Walt was alive, had, this, had that as the major moral lesson. So this is the moral lesson from this story. It is, it is the power of positive thought will get you through difficult times. Now, with that said, that is not good enough. That we need Jesus. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, and we need the connection to a loving Heavenly Father. The Pollyanna attitude is not good enough, because that just means you stick your head in the sand and you ignore your problems. But this is the credo right here. It's like, look, you have to, that, that is the moral lesson. When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. You make the best out of the situation. And here's the amazing thing about Snow White, is that she, she never gripes about anything. She never tells you what her, her problems are, or she never complains that her stepmother is trying to kill her. She never complains that her stepmother is making her scrub the floor. The worst that she does is she gives a little sigh. <sighs> if only my dreams would come true. That's the extent of it. She wishes on a well, and, you know, and then she scrubs the floor. Uh, from this point on, the little woodland creatures who she thought were out to get her are out to help her, and they lead her to uh, the cabin in the woods, right? And as Snow White, being the perfect little self that she is, she goes into the cabin, and she begins to clean uh, the seven dwarves' cabin. And she thinks that they're little children, right? She's, she, just, she just, oh, they must be little children without a mother. And, 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 and she just scrubs the place clean. Cleanliness is next to godliness, right? There's a connection right there. So, and, but when she does, she doesn't use magic. She doesn't, have, she doesn't spread pixie dust, and she doesn't command, you know, things to clean the house for her like the other princesses do. She doesn't sweep dirt under the carpet like some of those other princesses do, Right? She cleans that place. It is spick and span. Um, and, and after she's got her house in order, then she's introduced to the seven dwarves. And here's an interesting point about Walt Disney is that if you watch the movie, um, they're never called dwarves in the movie. They're always called little men. And there, there was very, there was, it was intentional on Walt's part to do that. And this, this lays out one of the values of Disney itself. It's because she connects with the little men as equals. Even though she has this ability to boss them around and clean up their stuff and, and kind of mother them in a way, uh, she doesn't see them as lesser beings. And this is where we get the value of inclusiveness in, in the whole value system of Disney itself. It starts right there. And it was very intentional from the very beginning because Walt didn't want to call them dwarves. Uh, and a, a Dopey was on the chopping block. They, uh, they almost didn't include Dopey because uh, they didn't want to have an imbecile. They didn't want to make fun of imbeciles in the movie. So he was very close from making the, the cut on that. And so this, again, this probably today he wouldn't, be there, but uh, this is, you know, this pushed everything forward on, on what they valued. And so we have Snow White, and she makes a perfect little community. It's clean. Everybody's getting along. There's only one bad apple in the, in the bunch, and that's Grumpy. He is, he's the cynic. Uh, immediately, he's like, okay, 
somebody was in our house and he says, it must be demons, it must be witches, it must be some type of evil thing that's going on. So that's, that is Grumpy's initial reaction when something good happens in his life or when something changes in his life. Have you ever had a change in your life and, and you just automatically attribute it to being evil? Maybe that change in your life is, is good. Maybe it's from God. And so Grumpy's got to go through a process, and, and he hates her. I mean, he hates Snow White. And, and she has this uncanny ability to minister to him. Uh, again, to show you the, the perfection of this community, it went from a dusty old thing into an idealistic utopia. And Ed, can we show that, that, that video there? Here they are. Oh, she's so awesome. They just did songs, told stories, more songs, danced, oh more goodness. songs. It's bedtime. Go right upstairs to bed. In a pig's eye, a sty. No, no, I mean, we'll be comfortable. Old tree man. Oh, yes, mighty comfortable. Now, don't you worry about us. <laughs> we'll be all right, ma'am. Go right on up now, uh, uh, my dear. Well, if you insist. Good night. Good night, princess. You're sure you'll be comfortable? All right, that's the first and last time that we see prayer in a Disney movie. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but it didn't re she, she didn't acknowledge God or Jesus. Um, but she, you know, they just they had the light coming in through the window, and she's she's praying. Do you notice? You notice who she's praying for? She's praying that God would bless the little men. So she prays for others first. That's a sign of humility. And then she brings her own petitions, which is that we make all my dreams come true, which is, uh, you know, Prince nobody in this movie. Uh, he doesn't do anything, by the way. He's he just he just. You know, he, he's there at the beginning, sings a lame song, and then kisses her at the end. That's the extent of the prince. He doesn't, he's not the hero. Uh, you want to know who the heroes are? The heroes are the woodland creatures and the dwarves. And so, so she, pray, she prays this prayer. And from this, from this prayer, not from her wishing on the wishing well, by the way, but from this prayer, we begin, to see, we begin to see breakthrough because immediately she's able to reconcile with, her, with the guy that hates her guts, Grumpy. And she said, make, gr make Grumpy like me. Don't pray this prayer, folks. That's not a good prayer. Oh, just make, <laughs> make that guy fall in love with me. That's not going to work. It just doesn't work that way. But uh, there's a reconciliation and there's a, there's, a, there's a camaraderie. And one of the other statements that Grumpy makes is, is if, we let, if we let this princess, if we let Snow White into our house, if we let her in and if we make her part of us, we let her into our hearts, 
evil queen is going to come and get us. We'll pay the consequences for letting Snow White come in. And he's right. He is 100% right. But from this prayer and from her ability to connect, there's a reconciliation and then there's a, there's a bonding between Grumpy and Snow White. And again, the heroes of this story, it's not magic. It's not Prince, I don't do anything in this movie. It is, it, again, it's, it's woodland creatures. And the man that steps up to the plate is Grumpy. So when they figure out that sin not only has, has come into this world, but sin has come into their house and has infected their house. The man that steps up to the plate is grumpy. All the other guys are acting like they like dopey, right? They're running around with their heads cut off. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And grumpy is the only one that says, let's go get her. Let's kill her. I mean, it's, it's pretty brutal. So all these little cute little animals are going to hunt down the witch and kill her. It's awesome. And so they, they I know, I know. And, and they, they, they get the knowledge from the animals that the witch, the queen, has transformed herself into a peasant to deceive Snow White. And the deception comes into the form of the most iconic symbol in our culture, which is the apple, right? Do you see where I'm going with this? The apple uh, brought in by the evil one, this is, a, this is a direct correlation between the garden. Right? You have this perfect little community where there's perfect relationship. There is a longing for more, and the apple is there as the temptation. And so the, the, the witch brings in the apple, and she's, she presents it, first of all, as saying, you know what? Little men really like to eat apples in their pie. And she's like, oh, no, that's okay. And so the, but then she gets Snow White where she's weak which is her dreams coming true. She says, look, if you, this is, this is not your ordinary apple. This is a wishing apple. This, is, this, this apple, if you eat it, your dreams will come true. It is, it's the shortcut to what God wants for you. And this is exactly what, the, what Satan presented Adam and Eve in the Garden of Evil. He's saying, look, I know, Adam and Eve, that you have a desire in your heart to know more. And what you don't know is that there is a shortcut, and it is in this apple, uh, it's in the garden, it comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason why God does not want you to eat this is because he doesn't want you to think like he does, he doesn't want you to become powerful. And, and of course, what's the original sin? It's pride. So that, that pride to know what God knows, to actually take the place of God is what tripped up Adam and Eve. And the, the moment that Adam and Eve sunk their teeth and tasted the juice of the apple, probably wasn't an apple, by the way, but as soon as they tasted that juice, God's heart was immediately grieved because he had foreknowledge of what would happen when pride entered into the hearts of men and women. He had, this, he had this foreknowledge. He could see the future. And as soon as God's heart was grieved, his son was activated with his assignment. Jesus said, Oh, Father, I understand the grief in your heart. I can fix that situation. From the day Adam and Eve took bite, Jesus was there to come in and accept his assignment. And then we see it all kind of play out through the whole Old Testament. And then, of course, when he came to the planet himself, we see it come to fruition. So sin enters into a perfect life. You know that you, know that you can have heaven on earth right now? Like you can, if you take care of the, the sins of the flesh, and if you take care of this issue of pride, you can live a life that you did not expect. You could have an empowered Christian life where everything kind of falls into place. Even when bad things happen, things fall into place because there's a favor of God on you. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Once you accept Jesus into your cute little cottage that, that is perfect where you have all your relationships shored up, um, hello, all right. Once you do that, uh, 
Grumpy is absolutely 100% right. She's going to come out and get you. Like there's a mark on you. Once you say, I'm going to live a godly life, I'm going to live a righteous life, the enemy of God is going to come in and he's going to try and rip you off and he's going to present to you the apple, the shortcut, the easy way out. He doesn't want you to grow in maturity. He wants you to take the easy way out. We have to realize that. There is, when we decide to follow the Lord, when we decide to live a godly, holy life, we're marked people. He's going to mess up your cabin. He wants to. So, of course, uh, the woodland creatures and, and the, uh, the dwarves, they, they, they chase off the evil one. And so there's that natural element that kind of comes in is the saving force, right? That's the salvation in a sense. That's the thing that overcomes evil is actually the natural force, right? And when, the, when, the, when they corner the, the witch on the top of the mountain, she's going to roll a big boulder on, on the guys. And a divine bolt of lightning strikes the mountain and she falls to her death. So they don't actually swing their pick and get her. Uh, she... This lightning bolt kind of does it for her. It is the divine justice behind the whole thing. And, and so there's that, that area of justice and even redemption. But then we have the problem of the dead girl, the, the girl that ate the apple. And this is probably going to be the most difficult concept to kind of portray in this story um, because... I don't think any of us have ever thought of it. In most literature, and especially in most Western literature, there is always, and I, again, this goes back to the idea that it's wired into our spiritual DNA, even, even just who we are, but there's always this connection to whenever an author writes a book or whenever there's some major uh, literary themes, there's always this concept and connection to Christ types. There's always, a, there's always, almost always a hero. There's almost always somebody that sacrifices for, for the good, whether it's Spock, you know, taking on radiation, you know, for the good of all or whatever. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's always, in most stories, there's always a, somebody that, that pays the price. And they get this idea from the gospel message. And believe it or not, Snow White is a, extremely powerful Christ type. And you may think to yourself, well, Josh, well, she doesn't, I mean, she's crying in the woods. Well, Josh, she, you know, Mulan has a sword. You know, she doesn't do it. She doesn't have a sword. You know, the other princesses, they, they've got some power. They've got some magic. She's got nothing. You know, the only f- character flaw that we see in Snow White is that she she wanted she took the easy road she took a bite of the apple, but it was just because you know she wanted to you know she wanted her prince right she wanted uh, you know her her prince to come in and save her or whatever that was her only flaw but besides that she is Snow White she is purity she is there she doesn't do anything that is petty. Or anything that is evil, or she, she's pure perfection. And Walt wrote her that way on purpose. Walt said, I want her to be pure perfection. And that is the power of the Christ type in her. Because, yes, Jesus sacrificed his body for us, he was pure. When, when John the Baptist saw him coming down the mountain to be baptized, he gets it. He says, oh, behold, the spotless lamb of God. Uh, and John says the same thing. Uh, that's the one I just read. Um, Peter, do I have Peter? I don't have Peter. I'm sorry. Peter says the same thing. Peter says this is the spotless lamb of God that has taken the, the, the sins of the world away. And so, again, in all literary illustrations, they all break down, right? But what I really want to highlight, okay, yes, Snow White did not sacrifice herself. But, again, she is she's pure perfection. And if you actually think about it in that sense, 
um, the huntsman. The huntsman is commissioned to slay her on a rock with a knife. And she is the only child. And as he's raising his knife, and again, he has murder in his eyes. When you watch the movie, his eyes turn yellow. And you know what that means, right? That means that he's going to pull it off. And something clicks in him where he can't, he can't do it. It's almost like there's a divine intervention. And, and I'm not just making this up. Other, other scholars are making this connection that there is a, there's a connection between uh, the huntsman and the knife and Abraham and Isaac. There's a sacrifice. There's a pure sacrifice that needs to be made in order for this issue of pride to be overcome. The other issue, the other thing that we see that Snow White does, that Jesus does, is that Jesus enters into the wilderness and he's tested and he's tempted in the wilderness. That Snow White enters into the wilderness and she's tested and she's tempted and she comes out of the other side of the wilderness knowing that a lot of these things are in my mind. Uh, some of the other things that are very like Jesus is that she, uh, let's see here. She's got a group of disciples. <laughs> She's got a group of uh, numbskulls. It's very much like the Bible. And the one that gets ministered to is grumpy. And he's an awful lot like Peter. She restores him and she redeems him and she brings him back into the fold. And so it is, uh, I think that the purity of Snow White is, is the way that we need to think about Jesus. He is powerful. He is coming back with a, with a sword, right, on a white horse with pure white hair. He is He's pure. He's, he's, he's pure perfection. And where Snow White breaks down, he, he picks up. He is, he is the, the true Jesus. Uh, a while back, uh, I quoted something from Timothy Keller, who was one of my favorite pastors that I like to rip off all the time. And, and I'm going to read this to you. This is something that he actually... He ripped this off from another guy. So I don't know who that is, but Timothy Keller said this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and who is obedient and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out for acquittal and not condemnation. Condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar surroundings and to go out into the void, not knowing whether he went, in order to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was sacrificed for us. Well, God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom, uh, whom you love, and you did it for me. Now we know that you love me because you did this, we withheld your son, you did not withhold your son. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and to discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betray and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between people and the Lord and who meditates, who uh, mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck but with the rod of God's justice now gives us the water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. 
Jesus is the true and better David, who, whose victory becomes his people's victory, through, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the true and better Peter Pan, who takes us into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the true and better Elsa. Jesus is the true and better Snow White. He is pure perfection, and he did sacrifice everything for us and for our freedom. Does that make sense? You see the power of using a grim fairy tale to preach truth. It's hardwired into us all, this gospel message of Jesus Christ. And, and when we watch these movies with or without our kids, uh, again, I just wanted to be a tool that we can glean truth from. The moral truth of this story is, look, bad things are going to happen to good people. And it is biblical to say, I'm not going to let this negative situation rule me. I'm going to smile. I'm going to sing a happy song. I'm going to sing a happy worship song. How about that? Does that work? That works, doesn't it? All right, let's do it that way. I'm going to sing a happy worship song. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit lead me and guide me to get out of this tough spot. And the spiritual lesson in this is pride. I mean, pride is the sneaky one. Pride's the sneaky sin that kills us all. And we need to be vigilant and not not let sin enter into our cabin, into our little cottage that we have cleaned up. I remember when uh, Snow White was praying that, that selfless prayer, a prayer, one that Jesus would pray himself. He's prayed some, some things that are very similar. Um, you know, I feel, after reading this, I feel really guilty about making fun of Walt Disney because you need to hear this. This is an actual quote from Walt Disney. Every person has his own ideas of the act of praying for God's guidance, tolerance, and mercy to fulfill his duties and responsibilities. My own concept of prayer is not a plea for special favors, nor as a quick uh, uh rattling off of the wrongs and that I've committed during the week. A prayer, it seems to me, implies a promise as well as a request. At the highest level, prayer not only is supplication for strength and guidance, but also becomes an affirmation of life and thus a relevant praise of God. Do your prayers praise God? Think about that one. When you pray, does it praise God? Okay, catch this. This is beautiful. Deeds rather than words express my concept of the part religion should play in everyday life. I'm going to say that one again. Deeds rather than words express my concept of the part of religion should play in everyday life. You can read about this stuff. You can read the words. You can get all this information, but if we're not living it out, it's nothing. I have watched constantly that in our movie work, the highest moral and spiritual standards are upheld. Where it deals with a fable or with stories of living action, the religious concern for the form and content of our films goes back 40 years to the rugged financial period in Kansas City. Did you know that Walt Disney had to work to where he got? It was very difficult for him financially. Okay, the, the key to his success is coming up. Uh, when I was struggling to establish a film company that produced animated fairy tales, thus, whatever success I have had in bringing clean, informative entertainment to people of all ages, I attribute in great part to my congregational upbringing and my lifelong habit of prayer. Wow. 
I wish I had a prayer life like Walt Disney. Did you get that? I mean, this isn't like just wishing upon a star type of stuff. This is, this is prayer at the highest level where, where there is a, there's a request and there's a promise and there's supplication where prayer itself is worship to God. My prayer itself is usually complaining to God about something like, like forgetting my pants or having the printer not work or, or something like that. I guarantee you, when Walt Disney was in his darkest moments financially, when he was scraping everything by to, 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 to build you know, his dream, probably a God-given vision for his life, I guarantee you that, that he was praying and that he was hoping and then he was more than just wishing upon a star, that he, he was engaging the creator himself to give him guidance and to give him peace to give him power. Um, I think that definitely in Snow White, that gets communicated. If I could have the band and the ushers come to the front. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Father, right now, we just pray that... Uh, that sneaky sin of pride that can easily get into my life and every believer's life. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come convict us whenever pride is coming in. Whenever we think that we, that we don't want God in our lives, we don't want God in our finances, we don't want God in our relationships, we don't want God in our private life, we don't want God on our computer screen. God, I pray right now that you would just bring us into a... a sorrowful repentance that leads to a transformed mind. Father, right now, those that, that, are, that are struggling with uh, the weakness of fear, where there's so much doubt and pain, where we're just scared that, that everything in our life gets amplified as being negative or, or evil, when, when there's actually a, a blessing in the pain, when there's actually a hope in that difficult situation, he, he just wants us to get through it. God, I pray that we would, we would not be ruled by that fear. So, Father, I pray that we will just attach ourselves to your promises, that we will attach ourselves to saying, I can, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to smile I'm going to praise the Lord with my lips. I'm going to sing a joyful song. Father, right now, I also pray that we will, we will connect to the basics, to the moral life. I pray that we will glean from moral lessons, God. We'll do things the right way. We'll do things your way. Most of all, God, I pray that we will just make that connection to the pure and spotless Lamb of God that didn't have an ounce of sin, an ounce of pettiness, an ounce of pride, an ounce of deceit in Him. God, we have pure perfection that we can be in relationship to. And we thank you so much, Jesus, that at the moment Adam and Eve sunk their teeth into that fruit of pride, that you said, I can fix it. Thank you, Jesus.